it's Bill here at our History Highlights podcast. Hope you guys are having a wonderful day. And for today, this June 25th, thought I would share with you a fun story about Rosie the Riveter and a bonus about Custer's Last Stand. Let's start with Rosie the Riveter, who was based on an actual person, who was born on June 25th of 1924 as Rosalind P. Walter. During her lifetime, Rosalind became known as a philanthropist and as a principal benefactor of public television. Before her years of service to public television and other philanthropic causes, Rosalind was one of many young women who worked in the war industry during World War II. After high school, 19-year-old Rosalind began working as a riveter on Corsair fighter planes at the Vought Aircraft Company in Stratford, Connecticut. After a newspaper article featuring Rosalind's work was published, songwriters Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb were inspired to write the song Rosie the Riveter. Here are some of the lyrics from the song. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie the Riveter. Keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage, sitting up there on the fuselage. That little girl will do more than a male will do. The song concludes with, There's something true about red, white, and blue, about Rosie the Riveter. With the release of this song, the concept of Rosie the Riveter became a part of the public consciousness. It should be noted that while Rosalind may have been the first, there were many other real-life Rosies throughout the war. Rosie the Riveter came to be a symbol of all women working in the war industries during World War II. After the release of the song inspired by Rosalind, the image of Rosie the Riveter was further cemented in the public imagination, in large part due to the circulation of illustrations and propaganda. On May 29, 1943, the Norman Rockwell Rosie illustration was published on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. In the 1940s, the circulation of the Saturday Evening Post was estimated to be around 4 million, and they always printed extra copies when a Rockwell illustration was on the cover. Today, perhaps one of the most famous of all the Rosie images is a poster titled We Can Do It which pictures Rosie in uniform flexing her muscle. The image was created by J. Howard Miller and published by Westinghouse. Surprisingly, We Can Do It, the poster, was not widely circulated during the war years, and there is no evidence to suggest that it was ever even seen outside the Westinghouse factory floors. The popularity of the We Can Do It image is largely attributed to its inclusion in a 1982 Washington Post magazine article called Poster Art for Patriotism's Sake about the poster collections at the National Archives. Down below, I've left a link where you can click and see that popular Rosie the Riveter poster. I've got a bonus for you today, a second story about Custer's Last Stand, because on June the 25th, of 1876, George Armstrong Custer and the 265 men under his command lost their lives in the Battle of Little Bighorn, 
often referred to as Custer's Last Stand. Educated at the United States Military Academy at West Point, Custer proved his brilliance and daring as a cavalry officer in the Union Army during the Civil War. Major General George McClellan appointed the 23-year-old Custer as Brigadier General in charge of a Michigan Cavalry Brigade. By 1864, Custer was leading the 3rd Cavalry Division in General Philip Sheridan's Shenandoah Valley Campaign. Throughout the fall, the Union Army moved across the valley, burning homes, mills, and fields of crops. Tapped to pursue General Robert E. Lee's army as it fled from Richland, Custer himself received the Confederate flag of truce when Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. At the end of the Civil War, he was commissioned to the Western Frontier as part of an army campaign to impress and intimidate hostile Plains Indians with a show of United States military might. After gold was discovered in the Black Hills in 1874, white miners flocked into territory ceded to the Sioux less than 10 years earlier. Although the Second Treaty of Fort Laramie from 1868 clearly granted the tribe exclusive use of the Black Hills, in the winter of 1875, the United States ordered the Sioux to return to their reservation by the end of January. With many Indians out of the range of communication and many others hostile to the order, the United States Army prepared for battle. On May 17 of 1876, Lieutenant Colonel Custer led the 750 men of the 7th United States Cavalry Regiment out of Fort Abraham Lincoln, Dakota Territory. Commanded by Brigadier General Alfred H. Terry, Custer's division was part of an expedition intended to locate and rout tribes organized for resistance under Chief Sitting Bull. Hoping to entrap Sitting Bull in the Little Bighorn area, Terry ordered Custer to follow the Rosebud River while he brought the majority of the men down the Yellowstone River. After meeting at the mouth of the Little Bighorn River, they planned to force the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne back to their reservations. Custer found Sitting Bull encamped on the Little Bighorn River in Montana. Instead of waiting for Terry, the lieutenant colonel chose to wage an immediate attack. He divided his forces into several groups and headed out. Quickly encircled by their enemy, the five companies under Custer's immediate command were slaughtered in less than an hour. Over the next two days, the remnants of the 7th Cavalry fought for their lives as they waited in vain for Custer to relieve them. On June 27, the Indians retreated as reinforcements arrived. Expecting to meet Custer and prepare for battle, General Terry discovered the bodies of Custer and his men. Nearly a third of the men of the 7th Cavalry, including Custer and his brother, died at Little Bighorn. A stunning but short-lived victory for Native Americans, the Battle of Little Bighorn galvanized the public against the Indians. In response, federal troops poured into the Black Hills. While many Native Americans surrendered to federal authorities, Sitting Bull sought refuge in Canada in 1877. Four years later, with his supporters on the brink of starvation, Sitting Bull returned to the United States at Standing Rock Agency in North Dakota. 
There, he fought the sale of tribal lands under the Dawes Act and participated in the Ghost Dance Movement, a cultural and religious revitalization amongst Native Americans. Threatened by a religious awakening that promised the end of white dominance, federal authorities attempted to take custody of Sitting Bull in 1890. He was killed in the affray sparked by the attempted arrest. I hope your summer is starting out in style and that you are enjoying every moment. Get out there on this wonderful June the 25th and make the most of your day. I look forward to talking to you soon with more from HistoryHighlights.com.